from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, OATS, HRT, and the EGPS. If a patient had evidence using the HRT of damage to the optic disc, focal damage to the rim, for example, an abnormal Moorfields regression analysis classification, those patients were at greater risk for the development of an OATS endpoint, meaning visual field loss or disc damage based upon clinical assessment. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Liebman declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions, is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. Today, as seen from here, celebrates two years of programs. Our podcast now has an average weekly audience of nearly 1,000 listeners in 98 countries. In addition to our main podcast, to which most of you are now listening, As Seen From Here welcomes listeners to our regional podcasts, As Seen From Slovenia, As Seen From Mumbai, and ASF Philippines, as well as listeners to our nascent Korean, Mandarin, Japanese, and Thai language editions. Of course, the credit for this growth goes to you for telling your colleagues and by incorporated as seen from here into your residency and fellowship programs. So before I introduce today's guest, let me say thanks. Two years ago, when as seen from here podcast its first program, our guest was Jeff Liebman. Jeff is one of the best known and most respected glaucoma specialists in the world. Today, we welcome Jeff back to talk about one of the best-known and most respected glaucoma studies, the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study, and its ancillary study examining the role of confocal laser scanning ophthalmoscopy, or tomography, in the evaluation of ocular hypertension. We'll also examine the European Glaucoma Prevention Study, the EGPS. I asked Jeff to give us some background on OATS, the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study. What evidence exists that confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopes can distinguish between glaucomatous discs and normal discs? Well, confocal confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopes come in a variety of of different uh, technologies and different devices. The most commonly used are the ones that look at disc topography, the shape of the optic disc, like the Heidelberg retinal tomograph, or look at the nerve fiber layer using polarimetry, like in the GDX instrument, so there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of publications of now probably over the last ten or even fifteen years describing the ability of these technologies to differentiate normal eyes and glaucomatous eyes just by the appearance 
of the image uh, taken with with these instruments. Now, of course, it depends on which populations you test. So if you take patients with advanced visual field loss, the devices are going to be very sensitive at detecting glaucoma. And as you use patients with less glaucoma damage, let's say moderate visual field loss or early white-on-white visual field loss, the devices become less sensitive at their ability to detect and less less able to discriminate the glaucomas from the normal ones. And then there's a whole overlap group, and you know, we call them glaucoma suspects, where the white-on-white visual field is normal, and these devices sometimes define the patients as being outside normal limits, and that those are often what we call you know, glaucoma patients prior to white-on-white visual field loss. So they're very good at detecting damage, and in a way, they're about as effective as classifying patients on as having glaucoma based upon the appearance of the optic disc as ex- expert examiners. So if you ask a series of glaucomatologists to classify patients just by looking at the optic disc, um, these devices um, are about the same as those expert examiners in terms of their ability to do that when it's done in a masked fashion. So they're pretty good at discriminating you know, normal from glaucoma. Um, there's no, as, as most of us realize after practicing a long time, there's no one test you can use to determine whether a patient has glaucoma. Um, but these devices are pretty good and they're very helpful. The ocular hypertension treatment study showed us that ocular hypertensives with larger vertical cup-to-disc ratios are at greater risk for five-year conversion to glaucoma. Prior to the study that we're going to talk about next, were there any other disc characteristics recognized as ocular hypertension risk factors for glaucoma conversion? Well, the, the problem with all studies prior to OATS was that they were very small. They usually occurred at a single site. Um, patients were not randomized to treatment versus non-treatment. So, you know, most of the studies prior to the OATS study really are now viewed primarily, mainly as of historical importance only. So in, in our era, since the publication of the OATS data, I like just to look at the OATS data and move forward rather than using data that was older and had many more problems. So, of course, there, there are patients who might have predisposing factors to, to glaucoma, to the development of glaucoma based upon the appearance of the nerve. But many of these patients actually, and, and this is probably true of the OATS study as well, they have already had existing glaucoma. So a patient starts with a vertical cup disc ratio of 0.3 and then progresses to a cup disc ratio of 0.5. But the white-on-white visual field remains normal. If the patient's enrolled in the study when the cup disc ratio is 0.5, that obviously is a patient who's already progressed and already has glaucoma, but would still meet the entry criteria as being normal. So they would be enrolled as a normal ocular hypertensive subject with a normal disc in a normal field but in fact, they've already progressed. So a lot of these patients with larger vertical cup disc ratios in OATS, and perhaps the reason that the larger vertical cup disc ratio turned out to be a risk factor, was the fact that they already had pre-existing glaucoma. And of course, it's very difficult in clinical practice to discern these patients or separate them from the, from the larger group of ocular hypertensives. So looking at the optic disc, certainly any signs of glaucomous optic neuropathy, focal thinning of the disc, damage to the retinal nerve fiber layer, the appearance of a disc hemorrhage, all these things have been well known to be characteristics of the disease process, and their presence probably you know, serves as a predictive factor for the development of glaucoma. Jeff, the vast majority of listeners to this podcast know what OATS is, but would you do me the favor of just briefly going over OATS and its findings? So 
the Alcohol Hypertension Treatment Study, which was designed in the early 1990s, and the first major article, which was published in June 2001, was a nationwide prospective randomized clinical trial studying over 1,600 patients with ocular hypertension to determine the rate of progression to frank glaucoma um, and the effect of treatment. So in that study, patients with normal optic disc appearance is judged by clinical evaluation and confirmed by a disc reading center. And normal achromatic white-on-white Humphrey visual fields, um, as confirmed by a visual field reading center, were enrolled. Half the patients were randomized to topical treatment with anti-glaucoma medications to achieve a target reduction of 20%, and the other half were followed with observation alone. Patients were followed at every six monthly intervals with visual fields and every year with a dilated disc examination. All the visual fields were read by a visual field reading center, and all the optic disc disc photos were read by an optic disc reading center. There were two ancillary studies to OATS, one looking at short wavelength automated perimetry, and a study we'll discuss later on looking at HRT testing in a subset of patients. The primary paper, looking at uh, the initial question of whether or not treatment of ocular hypertension prevents or delays the onset of glaucoma, revealed that treatment with a target pressure reduction of 20% reduces the risk of glaucoma by over half. So in the untreated group, approximately 9.5% of patients progress to development of progressive optic disc damage and or visual field loss at five years compared to the treated group where approximately 4.5% progressed. That was the main outcome of the initial paper. It was all, that paper was accompanied by a risk factor analysis paper, which revealed that certain characteristics predisposed to the development of glaucoma in these patients. Those risk factors were higher intraocular pressure, as we all might have expected from clinical practice, a thinner central cornea, something that we did not expect to be as significant as it was, but for every 40 micron decrease in central corneal thickness, there was a significant increase in, in glaucoma risk, a slightly worse visual field, worse vertical cup disc ratio, and older age, all of which predisposed to progressive disease. In the initial study, diabetes, which was only present in a small percentage of OATS patients, was found to be protective for future glaucoma damage and was really thought to be an aberration of the statistical analysis in the enrolled patients. And later on, when the European Glaucoma Prevention Study results were, were released, and the OATS data combined with EGPS data showed that the diabetes factor dropped out as a risk factor. So that's no longer considered to be a uh, protective condition for this disease. Jeff, what did the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscope ocular hypertension treatment study, ancillary study, set out to do? So back in the uh, early 1990s when, when the OATS study was being designed, there weren't that many HRTs and confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopes in clinical practice at the time. So a subset of sites um, with the device got together and submitted a grant led by Bob Weinberg at the University of California, San Diego, to test the OATS patients in their practices at their study sites with this device in the hope of providing objective measures of the optic disc so that 
who would rely on clinician estimation of optic disc appearance. It was both to assess risk of future disease progression, but also quantify the rate of progression using the data supplied by these instruments to try to take out, to try to eliminate again the subjective nature of optic disc examination that occurs in all of our practices on a day-to-day basis. So we enrolled roughly, I think, 800 uh, patients, or roughly half the OATS sample in that trial, uh, and followed them prospectively with images taken using the Heidelberg retinal tomograph. One, the first version of the device, because that was the only version that was available at the time of study initiation, and I followed them with that device uh, since that time. What were your findings from this study? Well, I think that just as the OATS risk factor paper, looking at all the risk factors, was important, I think that the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopy ancillary study provides us with even more evidence that a few things are true. The first is that it is possible to predict the development of glaucoma in the ocular hypertensive patient with instruments. So the major finding of the paper that was published was that if a patient had evidence using the HRT of damage to the optic disc, focal damage to the rim, for example, an abnormal Moorfields regression analysis classification, those patients were at greater risk for the development of an OATS endpoint, meaning visual field loss or disc damage based upon clinical assessment. So patients who had an abnormal Moorfields classification at the time of study entry, suggesting that they had subtle damage to the optic disc at the time of entry, were at much greater risk for developing ocular hypertension. And one could say that that's great, that the device is able to detect damage to the optic disc earlier, and therefore these patients actually had glaucoma damage at a very early time maybe perhaps at the time of initiation of the study. And that's, of course, true. But it also tells us that these patients are at greater risk for progression using clinical management. So imagine we have a patient who has what looks like a normal optic disc and a normal visual field, and the patient has a normal HRT. Compared to a patient with the abnormal HRT, the patient with the normal HRT is much less risk for future disease progression compared to the abnormal HRT. And one might decide to treat the patient with the abnormal examination in that circumstance, and you might not have decided, might not have wanted to treat him or her earlier. So it can influence our treatment uh, patterns in clinical practice. And even though we use the HRT1, the first iteration of the HRT in that trial, the platform for the HRT essentially remains stable through the HRT2 and HRT3 versions, and the data is has been converted to HRT usage, and we can use the HRT2 in clinical practice. There were findings that correlated with conversion to open-angle glaucoma besides the Moorfields, general and Moorfields focal findings. For those aspects that correlated, things like cup volume, do you think that for these patients that what we're seeing is subclinical pathology or are, 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 are these markers for physiologically more susceptible nerves? Oh, it's an excellent question. I, I would suspect that these are just, these, these findings just represent the ability of the device to detect disease earlier than a person can. So, for example, you know, these patients who were actually enrolled in OATS, the ones that that are found to have an all abnormal HRT at baseline, likely had early glaucoma damage 
I mean, in a way, there's, there are two types of patients that the doctors enrolled in OATS. It has to do with the way studies are performed. You know, if I'm a practicing physician and I'm enrolling patients, I have the patients who I've followed, for example, for my entire crew, you know, for the last 10 years with ocular hypertension. They've never progressed. And then I enroll them in a study. Chances are they're not going to progress. Then there's the group of patients who walk in the door and they're newly diagnosed ocular hypertensive. I don't know whether they're going to be stable or not. So there's different types of, there are different subsets of patients within the study population. And I suspect that these patients are patients who actually had early disease. It was beyond the ability of our, of our clinical examination to detect it. The patients were enrolled in the study. And then the disease became more apparent as the years went by to the clinician with an abnormal visual field and abnormal optic disc. So the technology helps us in these patients by pointing out which ones actually already have a potential problem or a greater risk for progression and in whom we should initiate the therapy sooner. Now, in the problem with the study is that there are only, I think, 41 endpoints and, uh, in 35 patients, and that's a very small number of endpoints. And one would not ordinarily expect there to be such a very big difference in predictive value or such a large predictive value in, in, in endpoints like that, but they were very strong. And um, eventually, we'll be able to incorporate this information into the OATS predictive model, which allows us to better predict who's going to progress and continually refine you know, risk calculators so we can incorporate the HRT information rather than having to evaluate on the subjective you know, cup-disc ratio measurement that we all use in clinical practice. So I think that's the, essentially, eventually, it'll be a very powerful tool for, for use in clinical practice as we incorporate that data. Now, the other side of that coin is that even for patients who demonstrated nerve fiber layer loss by Moorfield's analysis, that the majority of even those patients did not go on to progress. What do you make of, of, of those patients? Do you follow what I'm asking, Jeff? Well, yes. I mean, what you're saying, I think, is that there are a lot, many, many patients who have the device is not 100% specific, so meaning that it doesn't always identify a normal individual as normal, and you can have false positives in the system as well. So it's not there's nothing again there's nothing foolproof about glaucoma, and it's one of those findings that helps predict who will progress, but it's certainly not a certainty. And you know you, you can at the moment using the technology you can't there is no risk calculation package you can use that incorporates the data in a more scientific way. So you can use the data that you have. It's better than we had in the past, but it's far from perfect. Jeff, one of the conclusions of the paper was that there was no one parameter that could be cited as the solo parameter. There's the only thing that you had to look at. But if one parameter does stand out, it's the height contour. What does the height contour mean in physiologic terms? very difficult to use all the individual parameters in the fashion that you're asking because, you know, we are, as, as the human computer, um, can only use the data in a certain way. And there are too many different numerical scores that come from these technologies to allow us to, to incorporate them and use them in clinical practice. I think that's the wrong approach for the clinician to try to follow every single one of these parameters and kind of try to determine which ones they want to use. So, sure, you know, each individual parameter had a different level of risk associated with it, 
And I think it was a temporal superior, for example, aspect of the Moorfield classification that was the most positive. Um, but the others also were useful, and it's very difficult to use those in, in clinical practice. So, so I try to stay away from from doing that. You know, in some of the newer technologies, the newer version of the HRT, um, there are topographical change analysis programs that have been developed to try to help the clinician interpret the data in this way. So although you might get an abnormal data, an abnormal point at the time you first examine the patient, if that point begins to change over time, it's a more impressive determination of disease presence and progression. So I like to use those algorithms whenever possible to help me interpret the data uh, from these devices. I think it's, a, it's an error to over-interpret um, these technologies because you can wind up with a lot of you know, false positives. Having said that, one characteristic that, that did uh, strike me was the fact that disc area correlated with, with risk. Why, why do patients with larger optic nerve head size uh, have a, a, a greater risk for conversion? That's a good question. You've got to go back to the other paper, though. There's another paper that was published looking at the baseline characteristics of these patients. And when you put it all on the hopper, the main thing to consider is what is the rim area rather than the disc area. The disc area turned out not to be as important and not to be different, for example, between people of different races as was originally thought. So, you know, disc area um, is, is a, remains a controversial topic. You know, looking at this, this paper and picking it apart um, can become a, a, a good exercise, but it's not, I don't think it's the way the paper should be interpreted. Um, I, I think the paper should be interpreted in more general terms. You know, there are very few people who use all these different facets in any kind of clinical practice. It's better to interpret, use this paper and interpret it in, this, in the context of the ocular hypertension study itself um, rather than looking at any one of these individual parameters because there's there's just there's not aren't enough patients to, to draw all those conclusions. And remember, this is a snapshot. This is not looking at what's happening over time to these patients. The study is a snapshot at study entry, which is not necessarily the best way to look at the data. I'm going to ask you then something very general. How should the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscope be used in the general ophthalmology practice? Well, I, I think that these devices are good for... You know, two things. The first is it helps to document the appearance of the optic, the optic disc. That's one of the key things, you know, in, in glaucoma, in glaucoma management, is that it, it's important to make certain that we have a record of how the optic disc appears. So that can be done with a disc photograph at the time of study entry, or a time of initiation of therapy or management of any glaucoma patient. Um, and I usually obtain a, a disc photograph at the time when I first see a patient as a baseline. Um, over time, that, that becomes more difficult to evaluate, and these devices provide analytical and quantitative information that you can't get out of a disc photograph. So things like disc area, the size of the rim, whether that rim area um, or whether the appearance of the optic disc is similar to a normal population, that's all useful information that you can't glean from just a photograph. Over a long period of time, and I'm talking about over years, just as we would follow visual fields of a patient over years, um, you can begin to detect change in the appearance of the and quality of the neuroretinal rim, and that would be indicative you know, of disease progression. For many patients, that, that progression in the optic disc may occur before visual field loss 
may occur and their treatment can be initiated or advanced at the appropriate time or earlier then it might not otherwise be instituted. The other thing, it does allow possibly for earlier diagnosis of disease because it is, it can be more sensitive for than a clinician. And if that early diagnosis allows for a change in physician behavior. So sometimes we make an early diagnosis or we have a high suspicion of disease, we know that we're going to change our behavior as, as a clinician. We might decide to see that patient a little more frequently. Even if we decide not to treat them, we may, as I said, see them a little more frequently to better assess them over time. So again, it's another piece of information that adds, uh, that helps us manage the patients in a disease that's, you know, 10, 20, or 30 years in duration. So it can be a, a very, very, very useful tool. Jeff, when the previous OATS paper came out, it, it really changed my clinical practice. I could take clinical data and come up with something that looked like a risk number for five-year conversion to glaucoma. What do I do now? What do I do with this current paper with the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscope uh, uh, risks? How do I synthesize this into one risk number that I can then use to decide whether I'm going to prophylactically treat someone for ocular hypertension? Well, one of the problems with the current risk calculators, and there are several risk calculators that are available to determine the risk of progression, let's say the five-year risk of progression from ocular hypertensive to glaucoma, is that they require physicians to estimate the vertical cut disc ratio in, in, during clinical examination. And that turns out to be very variable and can affect the outcome of the risk calculation. So Medeiros demonstrated that in this paper subsequent to their risk calculator paper, demonstrated that if you use the information from the HRT or from other, some other devices and substitute it for the subjective clinical number and use the information from the device, you actually don't get much of a change in the risk calculation. So you can use the information from the hardware in the current risk calculator models as a substitute. And we don't have to be dependent on clinician interpretation of the optic disc because it does vary widely among clinicians. The other way it will eventually be used is to use the OATS HRT data in the model. That has not yet been done. That is not yet available. So you can't um, add this data to refine the risk calculation data that already exists. But it would be reasonable to expect that such a calculator might be forthcoming. Uh, undoubtedly that as more data is assessed from the old study, there'll be new risk calculators. And you know, risk calculators for everything, whether it's for cardiac disease or for eye disease, constantly evolve over time as more information becomes available. So a risk calculator that was available five years ago um, probably very different today, and the one we have today will be very different than the one that we have you know, five to ten years from now. Jeff, you earlier mentioned the European Glaucoma Prevention Study. What is that, and how does it differ from OATS? The European Glaucoma Prevention Study was is the European equivalent of the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study. That was a study that was funded mostly by Merck, um, performed in Europe at a variety of centers, and the entry criteria were very similar to the OATS criteria, elevated intraocular pressure, normal disc, and normal results. It did differ, however, from OATS in several key ways, there was no standard visual field reading visual field reading center that determined the visual fields were normal study entry. There was no optic disc reading center to do the same. So 
they had a slightly different study design, and maybe because of that, they had slightly different outcomes. They also did something unusual. The, the two treatment arms, one was uh, active treatment, and in that treatment arm, they used dozolamide, which is Mochia's Trusop here in the United States. And the placebo, the, the, uh, the, the observational group, was actually treated with the dozolamide placebo. So in the OAT study in the United States, the observation group did not receive any medication. And in the EGPS, the observation group received the placebo. The results of the EGPS were fairly similar to the results of OATS in the sense that they demonstrated that lowering intraocular pressure was protective or delayed the onset of glaucoma in many patients. But they also demonstrated a large placebo effect, meaning that patients who were enrolled in the placebo arm wound up having lower intraocular pressures during the course of the study. And when one looks carefully at their data, it becomes apparent that there were some issues with study design that perhaps caused an anomaly in the intraocular pressure measurements. So there, there were some methodological issues that occurred that, although they don't validate all the results of the study, will make us look at the results with a grain of salt and although they complement OATS, do not replace the OATS data. Do, do you want to speculate on why the TRUSOPT vehicle seemed to have an effect that was substantially different from not treating patients as was done in the OATS study? Or do you want to leave that hot potato alone? <laughs> there, are, there are theoretical reasons why the pressure could have dropped on a subsequent visit. That has to do with the initial measurement of intraocular pressure. could have been on a day when the patient had a high pressure, and what they saw primarily as a treatment effect was regression to the mean effect, meaning that they caught them on a high day when actually patients typically had lower pressures um, than that. So the next subsequent pressure was lower than they would have expected, and that may have been a strong confounder of their results. On the other hand, the reduction that they saw at five years was a greater reduction than the reduction that they saw at one year, both in the vehicle group and in the, the treatment group. So it, it's not just that they saw a reduction on you know one set of, of, of readings. There seemed almost to present a, a, a sort of trend of decreased pressure over time, even in the group that just got vehicle. Well, if there seem to also have been many patients who perhaps dropped out along the way, dropped out of the study during the five years. So imagine a patient is being treated with dozolamide or in the placebo group and starts having an elevated pressure. The doctor doesn't want to follow that patient, so he removes them from the study and begins treatment with a prostaglandin, for example. Then the patients that are left in the trial are those that have lower pressures than the group than before they remove that patient. You're constantly, you're constantly teasing out the higher pressure patients, leaving lower pressure patients in the trial. So it looks like intraocular pressure tends to be decreasing. You know, in their trial, you know, they report that dozolamide reduced pressure by 15 to 20 percent, um, but the placebo group is very, very close to that as well. So I'm not sure that they actually demonstrated that their placebo 
that that the true sapt was far superior to the placebo. They did they did demonstrate that the patients with lower pressures did better, um, but I'm not sure about the actual treatment effect with this particular agent. So, you know, there there are, there are questions there that I think still remain open and need to need to be addressed. Now, if you try to look at the risk factor assessment from the trial, and some nice work has been done by the combined by a combined group of researchers from both OATS and the EGPS where the data has been reanalyzed, some of the data sets have been combined um, to make a larger, more powerful data set. It turns out that all of that work corroborates the initial OATS data set, meaning that age, intraocular pressure, corneal thickness, increased vertical cup disc ratio, worse pattern standard deviation still remain in the large model with essentially twice as many patients as the old study had remain predictive for the development of glaucoma later on. And in a way, despite the problems with the data set, it does strengthen the OATS data set and makes it more um, worldwide in terms of its applicability. So we become, I guess, more convinced that the OATS risk factors set um, and this and analyses that have come from it are valid in in more and and varied populations. So in that sense, it's a very powerful addition to our understanding of the disease. Is the fact that a second study corroborated the risk factor assessment of OATS itself. That that study was presented at the academy this past year in a, in a revised risk model, looking at OATS and eGPS, incorporating all the data um, is available. Um, at the uh, at the OATS website at Washington University, and you can actually go online and take a look at that online risk calculator using the OATS eGPS dataset. Jeff, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I think that the, the one thing that I think is important is that most physicians, but all, virtually all physicians, fail to estimate risk correctly, primarily because all of our data is five-year data, five, six, seven-year data. And we have very little, very long-term data. So how do you extrapolate a five-year data to a 20-year disease process? In addition, the average OATS patient was something like 52 or 54 years old at the time of study entry, somewhere in the mid-50s. And that's pretty young. So if you have a five-year risk of developing glaucoma of 10%, using the calculator when you're 50 years old, how do you apply that information you know, to someone who's going to have a life expectancy at at that point of probably being about 85 or 90. The risk of conversion to glaucoma is actually pretty high. I think as we move along in terms of our understanding of this disease and the increased longevity of our population, we're going to have to develop better risk calculators that allow us to think about risk in terms of, you know, decades rather than in the short term. That's one of the hardest things, I think, uh, one of the, the biggest challenges that we have as researchers um, in the OATS study coming in the near future, and also one of the biggest practice changes that we're going to have to make as clinicians um, as we deal with a population that continues to age. Jeff, thank you very much. Anytime, Josh. Jeffrey Liebman is Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine and Director of the Glaucoma Service at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital in New York, New York. 
we discussed baseline topographic optic disc measurements are associated with the development of primary open-angle glaucoma, the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopy ancillary study to the ocular hypertension treatment study, which appears in the September 2005 issue of the Archives of Ophthalmology, and the European Glaucoma Prevention Study Group results of the European Glaucoma Prevention Study which appears in the March 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Liebman or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646 808 0231 in the United Kingdom dial 02075588275 or Skype jyoungmd those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com as seen from here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.